This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Hello and welcome back. Thank you for your excitement and support of the webinar and consulting services thus far. I am grateful for the good teams I have met with and the upcoming collaboration with more teams this summer and fall. Check out the website, www.criticalcareconsultant.net to sign up for a webinar and intro and consultation. I would love to share the research through case studies, pictures, and videos with your whole team. If you believe in changing outcomes through updating sedation and mobility practices, then let me help you get the rest of your team converted. Webinars thus far have come from one nurse or one PT, one OT, or one fellow convincing the team to just sit and listen for 60 to 90 minutes. This has already brought changes in discussion, attitude, practices, and outcomes. Once everyone understands the why and sees what is possible, then the discussion turns to, how do we start? I will also be offering financial presentations to help administration and stakeholders be convinced of the incredible financial benefit of having a well-staffed and interdisciplinary awake and walking ICU team. This episode, we have Dr. Ali Fosley from the Awake and Walking ICU here to clarify concerns about lung protective strategies and advice on how to start shifting our culture towards becoming an awake and walking ICU. Dr. Fosley, thank you so much for joining us. So I've been working at uh, hospital ICU since uh, 2016. And uh, prior to that, I worked, I've been in Utah since 2002. So I worked in Cardinwood Hospital when it was still open between 2002 and 2007. And then from 2007 to 2015, I was at, and then I left Utah for about a year. And I uh, was in a, another facility uh, in uh, New York State. So that's kind of my experience. So you had worked in multiple facilities um, and even more when you were doing your residency and fellowship. So what was it like after all of those experiences to go to this hospital and suddenly see patients walking on ventilators? So, you know, after f- finishing fellowship, and at least in the first few years of my practice as an uh, intensive care physician, we did not see anything like what we, what I was exposed to at hospital and to some extent at because that culture had transferred from hospital to as well in, in when IMC opened, but not probably to the same level as is done at hospital. So it was really, initially, it was really surprising that patients were awake. And, you know, first of all, it was surprising to see awake patients on the ventilator to begin with. 
you know, immediately after my, after finishing training or a few years after that. And also <clears throat> then to see that these patients were actually able to participate in different kinds of therapies and especially in mobility and being able to walk while on, you know, not insignificant amount of support from the ventilator was really surprising. And, you know, kind of didn't think, I didn't have, at, at that point had never thought that that would be something that would be possible. But obviously we learned that, you know, a lot of the people at the hospital who had pioneered this kind of work showed us, showed us that it was indeed possible and had some important benefits for patient care. And I just recently was doing a webinar with a team and every time I present this approach and show pictures and videos, jaws drop and it's pretty compelling, but I had a pulmonologist have a lot of valid questions about how to protect the lungs during ambulation. The concern I think across the board is about being able to continue lung protective strategies during mobility. And part of the discussion is that I think from a pulmonology standpoint, the intensivist was saying that's partially why we sedate, quote unquote, so that we can control the settings, the, the minute ventilation, the volume, because they're sedated. So how would you explain what happens to lungs and if this is a risky um, procedure to walk on the ventilator? I mean, as with everything, one has to make these decisions in a global context of the patient's well-being in terms of, you know, is the patient, how sick the patient is? Have we kind of gone through the different, you know, kind of risk assessments in terms of the mobility element here? And I think a good resource for that is the ABCDEF bundle, and especially that has really good guidelines on how to do this safely, and, you know, on the E element, which focuses on early mobilization. And, <clears throat> you know, if we, once we have, you know, let's say a sick ARDS patient who is just arrived Obviously, you know, we stabilize the patient. And again, our focus is more that the patient is getting um, the care that is evidence-based in terms of, <clears throat> you know, if we're giving him the right tidal volumes, the ARDS net, uh, six mils per kg ideal body weight, tidal volumes is, I think, the main element of that and then deciding on whether the patient should go with what kind of PEEP settings, whether you do the ARDS net normal PEEP protocols or high PEEP protocols based on the severity of the patient's illness. And then once they're stabilized in our, in, in the, in our ICU, we actually try and shy away from continuous sedation as much as possible we target pain uh, primarily, anxiety, and sometimes initially, maybe for the first six hours, 12 hours, they may need something for anxiety in the form of a drip. But usually after the 
after their pain has been taken care of. And I think the other element which is really important is nursing staff and their ability to communicate with the patient on what the goals you know, what the goals of treatment are without sedation or minimizing sedation as much as possible. So that takes some amount of experience with the nurses, some amount of training to have that comfort level for the nurses themselves, and then to be able to convey that to the patients that, you know, they're being taken care of, that they're not, you know, awake on a ventilator and being, you know, they're not in an abandoned state that there's always someone there who is constantly monitoring them. And I think our nurses are amazing that way, that they always have that expertise that they can calm the patients down. And I think once the patients realize that, you know, there's someone at the bedside, you know, within reach very easily, they would prefer, most of them prefer not to be, you know, asleep. So I think that in terms of, so that's number one in my mind is the mindset is, and then obviously making sure that the patient is safe. He's not like on four different pressers and, you know, peep or 20, you know, unstable. But once they're being stabilized and they're tolerating the ventilator, okay, they're hemodynamically stable. Then I think, you know, in small steps, you know, we're not saying like, okay, start with walking the patient 100 feet right off the bat, but, you know, get the patient up, can he dangle at the bedside, make an assessment with, you know, have physical therapy there. Can they, <clears throat> if he's able to do that, you know, what's his core strength, what was his baseline prior to getting sick? You know, after those assessments, if it looks like he, this patient is looks strong enough, and then, you know, we do bedside standing, dangling at the bedside, standing for some time. And if that, if he tolerates that and other parameters allow for the patient to move, then we go ahead and have the patient walk, even while on the ventilator, making sure that we're monitoring their, you know, hemodynamics, their saturations. You, you know, it's at least theoretically, it's, I think, a good question what happens to their tidal volumes when they're walking, I don't think that has been specifically looked at in, in a study like what happens to their tidal volumes when these patients are walking. But again, the walks are, you know, in the scheme of things, if they're able to walk, let's say even three times a day, it makes up probably, you know, less than, less, definitely less than an hour probably less than 30 minutes of total time on the ventilator while they're walking. And there's, I think, a paper in a kind of a review paper in intensive care medicine or other journal of intensive care. It's from, I think, July of 2016, which has a nice review on risks and safety and of, you know, different studies that have been done and then overall, it's, you know, I would say done in the right patient population. And after making sure that we have kind of looked through the possibilities of, you know, what the impediments may be or what the risks are 
I think it's a very safe safe procedure. And in in our ICU, it's been done for longer than I have been there. It's been done for probably close to twenty years. Yeah, I think Polly started it back in the nineties, and so you're right. There isn't research clearly defining what happens to the tidal volumes during these mobility sessions. And I think people assume that we're having to stick chest tubes in people all the time, but it's extremely rare. It's by and large, it's, you know, I haven't encountered any uh, patient that has had any, in my experience, when the patient that I've been taking care of while I've been on service, I haven't come across any complications with adverse outcomes. I think we had one patient who had a PE post-ambulation, but other than that, I haven't come across, you know, events like cardiac arrest or even serious arrhythmias. No, no, I haven't come across any pneumothoraces or, you know, bleeding episodes or, you know, patients having... So I, I think in, in those, from that standpoint, I think it's really safe. Obviously, you know, with the right checklists. Right. And it is a process. It's ongoing assessments continually. It's not just throwing everybody out of bed, blue and army crawling on the ground. Right. Um, it's a process. And, and you make a really good point that it, it is a skill set. I had a team reach out asking f- that the nursing staff at, at make a video showing how to talk to patients as they're waking up after intubation. And I hadn't thought of that. And when I asked the team there, they- I think the expertise, sorry, yeah. the expertise of the nurses in, I mean, not just in patients who have been intubated and who are baseline without any, you know, neuropsych problems, But we have patients with, you know, drug dependency, alcohol, you know, disorders and dependence. And even those patients, when they're intubated, the nurses are amazing. They can can really kind of get to the patients, you know, why are they anxious and help them just with being there and talking to them. I mean, it's obviously not 100% all the time. We do need... So in patients with alcohol withdrawal or delirium, sometimes to, you, you, you need to use medications, but not, not that often. And the nurses, I think, have such a deep understanding and respect for mobility and how much easier it is to take care of these anxious, wild patients after they've been mobilized that they innately use that as a tool. So I, someone commented on a picture on social media saying, and this is why I work night shift. I would never do this. And I had, I almost laughed, but it's really not funny because the irony is that night shift at, they do this mobility, even without physical therapy present, it's nurse driven and they will do multiple sessions. If you've got a patient that's really agitated, then they sit them up at three in the morning. And that might bother a lot of people to hear because it sounds like a lot of work. But it's also a lot of work to take care of the same patient for weeks extra because they got so deconditioned, they were stuck on the ventilator. Deconditioned. And also, you know, it's pretty clear now that the longer the patients are sedated, the longer they're spending time in ICU, they have, you know, the 
post-intensive care syndrome with further neurological and functional debility, possibly depression, post-traumatic stress. So all of that, I think, is complicated or worsened by the patient being, you know, sedated, lying in bed, deconditioned. And I think in, you know, it's, as you said, it's not uncommon at RDS ICU to have patients who are, you know, agitated at any hour of the day. And the nurses say, okay, let the first thing we're going to do is, you know, if the patient can walk, let's take him for a walk. And ultimately it's gotta be less work to go take a lap, even if it takes, you know, a little extra staff at that moment to be involved, than to sit there and try to ride this rodeo your whole shift. And that's what yeah, a lot like, of guys is telling me know, that it's worth it. As as you know, Polly, Polly Bailey, she will always say that the best thing for delirium is restorative sleep. And I think with any amount of physical activity, the patients do get some amount of restorative sleep. They get kind of an, some semblance of, no, uh, you know, a circadian rhythm going. So I, I, you know, in terms of safety, I think once you have kind of ruled out major issues of hemodynamic instability and the patient is not on, you know, very high levels of respiratory support. Or a then, infuser. Uh, sorry? Or a rapid infuser. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not every moment that I see that you're going to be walking, but it's most common. Right. But I mean, even, you know, we have had patients who've come in with severe ARDS and have been on, you know, PEEP of 15 or above, but you know, young patients who had severe either influenza or sometimes some other kind of pneumonia with ARDS. And we've been able to get them up. These are patients who are in their 20s, 30s, and even walk them on, you know, fairly high levels of respiratory support and do it safely. And we've had survivors on the podcast that talk about walking on a piece of 18, even 20 and walking right out of the ICU. But I think those numbers make people hold their own breaths and it makes people really nervous, but you make a good point that it's weighing the risk versus benefits. I mean, we have never seen harm, bare trauma from walking patients, even on higher settings, the time of possible increased uh, volumes that patients receive during mobility is minute compared to the other 23 hours that they're under controlled settings. And then considering the whole sequela of what happens to patients yeah, from sedation, it's not worth it. Unknown on, you know, if the patient is walking and is able to walk, and if he takes, you know, more than six mils per kilogram breath, which again, you know, if, if when patients are on a ventilator, we have them set for six mils per uh, keg, but they're not always just breathing six mils per keg with every breath. So depending upon their, you know, compliance and dynamics of their respiratory system, and that changes breath to breath. So it's, I think that is an, you know, 
as we know, that is a really important goal is six mils per gig. And it's, you know, evidence-based definitely. But I think restricting patients and sedating them to just get six mils per gig probably is kind of stretching that a bit too far and probably is counterproductive. Yeah, I think you make an extremely good point. And yet when patients are completely sedated, I'm sure it's rare to see anything besides exactly what the ventilator gives them. I think we're, there's enough, at least there's enough data on that, that, you know, you know, spontaneous awakening, spontaneous breathing trials, minimizing the amount of sedation overall, there's more than enough data on that, that that's, you know, a good practice. I think the reluctance from that step to mobility is, you know, it's, it's natural, you know, unless you start doing it. And maybe, you know, in some instances, maybe you do it on patients who are not on those high level of support. You dangle them, you have them stand at the side of the bed till you gain some experience with maybe slightly lesser sick patients who are not on PEEP of 18 or 20, but who are somewhere in the middle uh, of the spectrum till you, till you gain confidence in your program that this is a doable goal. But I think it's, it's uh, first, I think in my mind, I would say is it's one, you make that decision of change of culture. Okay, this is what we're going to try and accomplish. And then you set, you know, kind of goalposts to reach. Okay, we're going to try it on this patient population to gain some experience. If, you know, and as you gain more comfort, then you kind of increase the spectrum of patients that you use it with. And that's a good point because when people say, well, my patients are too sick, I refer back to these extreme examples, but that's not necessarily a comfortable place to start. If they already feel like it's high risk to even have anyone awake on the ventilator, then starting out with more stable patients, just to even have the visualization of a patient with their eyes open, calm, and up on a ventilator. I think that is a big start to changing the culture because seems like for this scene is believing. And so those yeah. that have never done it. You know, in terms, of, in terms of trying to change uh, practice, it, it's really hard. We get kind of rooted to something that we are been doing for years. And then if there's something new that comes up, it's hard to change your practice. But I think, you know, I would say we should start where, you know, any program is start at their comfort level rather than impose a certain level. Okay, you need to do this, Mm -hmm. but start where they are and then kind of as they become more comfortable with different aspects of this, then kind of inch up. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And teams that have started implementing this have applied this kind of approach, starting it with the more stable patients. And then they start to catch the vision and they get excited and the rest of the team starts having more buy-in. And then they start asking themselves, who else can we do this with? How else can we apply this? What else can we do? And so I think, I think that's, that's a, a very good example for, and especially for those that are wanting to implement this with their teams, I think we expect this day and night almost like cardio version. We want uh, electrocardio version, when it's probably more of like an amiodarone drip. 
for AFib rather than an instant conversion. And so it's going to be gradual for these. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it, it needs resources. It needs training, especially, I think, training both for the nurses. It needs the leadership to be on board. It needs the critical care physicians to be on board, physical therapy, occupational therapy. But I think if the leadership is on board, the physicians are on board, and the nurses get adequate training on the process, I think it's, it's something that can be and should be done. And as well as support. Nursing, nursing ratios cannot be three to one. Right. Which is what I'm, I'm hearing is happening in a lot of places. And so I think this is a very clear example of how those ratios deeply impact patient outcomes. When you have pa- ratios three to one, then you're probably going to deeply sedate and never touch any of your patients. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. I'm going to come back to some of the questions that people have about the ventilator. A lot of people are really nervous about ventilator dyssynchrony. They feel like they have to sedate because patients are so dyssynchronous. And we know ventilator dyssynchrony is a very valid and real occurrence. But I asked some of our respiratory therapists, some of the nurses, how often do you see dyssynchrony with these patients? Because I felt like it was very rare. And Cash, one of the respiratory therapists said, you know, I think I only see it in our delirious patients for the most part, unless they're severe, severe, severe ARDS. And I thought that was an interesting insight. He said, only when they're coming out of sedation, you know, if they come from another setting and we take off sedation, that's when you really get all the alarms, the honking and the thrashing and the erratic breathing. So I was just hoping to talk a bit a little bit about your perspective on ventilator dyssynchrony and how we can, how we can identify what's real dyssynchrony and how we can better treat it. But that's, you know, that's a long or pretty extensive topic by itself. But I think in in the current day and age, I think with most, with, with the ventilators that are available and with the expertise now on mechanical ventilation, true dyssynchrony, I think is not that common anymore. And, and some subset of patients definitely is. But again, <clears throat> you know, if you're visibly seeing that there is patient is in distress and they are, their work breathing is uh, high and they're really struggling, 
that's a different situation. But then even in those circumstances, then you kind of look through, kind of have a float flow chart of some sort or a tree that you go through. What why is this happening? Is the patient in pain? Would be the first one to think of. Uh, is the patient anxious? Is is the patient significantly hypoxemic despite whatever settings he or she is on? So, you know, addressing physiological issues in a systematic manner, trying to pinpoint or diagnose what exactly is causing the dyssynchrony or asynchrony, and then based on whatever assessments you've had, and then treating one of those, like if the patient is in pain, okay, let's take care of the pain. If the patient is anxious uh, and is anxious enough that they cannot be helped just with, you know, reassurance at the bedside, then let's take care of the anxiety. And we need, you know, if we need uh, certain medications, you know, if the patient needs to be on, let's say, dexmedomidine for some time or even for propofol not as an in, in you know independently just forever but you know to tide over a situation for some time till you figure out exactly why is this happening with an appropriate rascal and you know see what their ras is what their cam icu is and you know assess assess the patient based on that and then you know kind of go through uh, an algorithm to figure it out. But I, I think I agree with what you said with, you know, with the comments from respiratory therapy that more so there, you know, the asynchrony is associated or seen more in patients who are delirious. And I think there's a understanding of the respiratory system. I think we think of the respiratory system as the lungs. And if we're on a ventilator, then we're taking care of the lungs. But in my mind, it also involves the muscular system and the brain. And if we're allowing the muscles to deteriorate and we're injuring the brain with sedation, then we're really not benefiting the respiratory system. So I liked your approach of going through all the physiological options or factors that could be impacting the ability to synchronize with the ventilator. And I think, cause that's a big word that's been used with COVID patients is that these patients are so desynchronous, but they've also been receiving lots and lots of benzodiazepines, heavy, deep sedation, the delirium rates extremely high. So this seems like possibly that this is, this desynchrony is being misdiagnosed, that it's possibly more to do with delirium than than the lungs themselves. Yeah. So interestingly, there was a paper in Lancet in January 8th, on prevalence and risk factors for delirium in critically ill patients with COVID. And they had, I think this was about 69 ICUs in 14 countries. And some of the numbers on their findings were mind boggling. So it says infusion with sedatives while on mechanical ventilation was common, 64% of patients were given benzodiazepines for a median of seven to 10 days. And 71, almost 71% were given propofol for seven to median of seven to 10 days. Median RAS scores while on uh, invasive mechanical ventilation 
were minus four. And 81.6% uh, of the patients were comatose for a median of 10 days and were delirious for a median of three days. So it's like, and there were a couple of other papers also that the risk of delirium in patients with <clears throat> COVID is higher, but all of these patients are on, at least on those studies, were on lots and lots of sedation. I dispute that the recorded days with delirium, if patients are rasping negative four, you can't cam score them. Yeah. So we're, in my mind, I, I just am very confident that they were delirious for far more than three days. And yeah. COVID survivors, the things that they're complaining of, testified to me that they were deeply delirious for weeks, not just the three days in which they were off of sedation and too weak to thrash around. So then they could finally be allowed to quote unquote, wake up. And so especially I, in be. that group of patients, you know, without having family present, mm -hmm. I think that's another element that helps with delirium a ton is having family members, you know, be part of the care of the patients. And <clears throat> with COVID that's been really hard to do. And I think has also increased the risk of uh, delirium in these patients. So, I mean, in our ICU, we, you know, the risk of, uh, or the rates of delirium in COVID patients haven't been any higher than our baseline. And nobody gets, you know, if somebody has been on, I, I don't, I can't recall even, are the sickest of our patients being on continuous uh, sedation for 10 days. Has the word said even been used among anyone or any discussions? No, we don't have anyone on Versed. We don't use benzodiazepines hardly, you know, ever. It's for, and even in alcohol withdrawal, well, we probably use some other medications, more phenobarb or Librium if they can take all the medications. So we, we try and minimize benzodiazepine use as much as possible. We will use clonazepam through a feeding tube for anxiety. For often. low dose, not to... Low not for sedation, not to become comatose. No. So these numbers from this paper were just shocking. Is that Brenda Pun and Wes Ely? So Brenda Pun. Uh, we did an episode yeah. with them in episode 54. I just want to invite anyone that's hearing this to go back and listen to their further discussion of that study because that is extremely disturbing. Essentially, if you listen to these survivors, even before COVID, talk about what it was like to be deeply sedated. And many of those survivors probably didn't get that high rate of benzodiazepine administration like these COVID patients have. And so when they talk about COVID being so neurotoxic and all these long haulers, clearly it affects the body long-term. And yet I wonder how much of that is from what we've done to them in the ICU. And I mean, you can also see this is happening here with all the resources that we have. I have, you know, family and friends in Kashmir, in uh, India, in Pakistan, all over Southeast Asia, so, you know, and they're, with the COVID surge they're having and the pressures their ICUs are under, the, the harm that can happen 
with an approach to, okay, let's just sedate this patient and, you know, kind of put him on autopilot at that point. You know, there could, it's a recipe for disaster. I am so sorry for what's going on in, in your country, your people. I, I can, I try to be aware of what's going on, but it, it's, it's painful. Even for me, it's distance from it. I'm so sorry for everything that's going on there. And I think there's a lot to be gleaned from these places that have been in crisis, New York alone, the mortality rates were so high for COVID, but a lot of it was because they were so deeply sedated and untouched. And they spent weeks, like you said, on auto autopilot. There's no way you can survive sedation and immobility for that long. COVID alone, COVID aside. Yeah. And so I think you make up so many good points when we hear the word dyssynchrony. I would invite everyone to really think about what's actually going on with the patient. Are we just hearing an alarm? Are we just seeing agitation? Are we, are we seeing coughing, erratic breathing, tachypnea, and just turning on sedation right away without really using critical thinking and assessments? I mean, currently we have a patient in the ICU who is really sick. He was on high, high levels of PEEP and has, you know, is on CRRT, was on CRRT. It's a non-COVID patient, but intermittently would get, you know, almost like a panic attack. And, but the nurses were able to, you know, talk to her help her with the anxiety episode. Yeah, did we, you know, we put on a little bit of low-dose Presidex for some time that helped with, you know, these episodes when, you know, she would start desaturating, not from anything physiological happening, but she would just get really anxious. And she, you, if you saw her, you could see that she was fearful having almost like some, to some extent, from prior medical issues, like a PTSD-like experience, but with, you know, minimal amount of sedation, not sedation, but anxiolysis, and with, with, the, with the nursing staff and the rest of the team, she, she was able to, you know, do her physical therapy, do dangling at the bedside, and then start walking. And did that seem to help her anxiety? It did, for sure. And when you hear survivors... It gave her evidence that she was getting better. Right. And when you, you've got to feel so trapped, being stuck in a bed, if they're tied down, if they are in high pressure settings, it's got to be very anxiety inducing. And yet we've got to break this myth of thinking that sedation helps anxiety. That is continually something I'm hearing from people that in the community that I'm having these conversations with is because they're like, well, I would be so anxious on a ventilator. I might be too, but I don't think sending me into delirium thinking that my kids are kidnapped or that I'm being abused. I don't think that's going to help my anxiety. And when we understand what these medications really do to people's anxiety, that it induces anxiety, then we're going to use those other tools like you've mentioned to actually address the cause of the anxiety and truly treat it and not just give a patient like that more PTSD to deal with later. I mean, I think as caregivers, we are kind of 
you know, it's un- from from a caregiver standpoint, it's uncomfortable to see patients in that state. So, and we've been primed over the years to, you know, everything has a magic pill or a quick answer. So we grab grab those things, we grab onto those things. But if we think about the alternative modalities, which take a little bit of time, they take effort, they take a change of focus. But if we think of those things as equally or probably more powerful than grabbing two milligrams of Ativan or 20 milligrams of propofol and a propofol drip. But I mean, from a caregiver standpoint, I think that's, you know, it's a natural tendency to try and help the patient Mm -hmm. in some way. And it's uncomfortable uh, to see them struggle. But I think if we take a step back, take care of the immediate issue and uh, kind of do what, you know, all of us basically are trained to do is kind of think through the problem and not just reflexively jump for a quick solution. I think, you know, all of us can get to that point. So well said. And this is coming from a provider that's taking care of severe ARDS and now COVID ICU, a referral hospital that treats really sick people that if they had delirium, they probably would have this quote unquote dyssynchrony. And I think if we bring in more humanity, we'll be able to better diagnose what's actually going on with the patients and weigh the risk versus benefits before using sedation to say, is it, is it worth worsening the anxiety just to get the ventilator alarms off? Is it worth worse paying the price of the quality of life later just to have a quiet night for the nurse? But you're right. It is a skill set. It is a perspective, and it's a culture change. But you make very important points, and I'm so grateful for you coming on and sharing this with us. Is there anything else that you would share with the ICU community? No, I think it's. I would just say that you know, think about this process. Kind of, you know, do it in a stepwise manner. And the first step, I think, is the willingness to do it, to see it as a goal. And once you have that first step, okay, we're going to try and do this. Then the next steps can follow. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytonicuconsulting.com.